I was just reflecting this last week how we as Americans so quickly become immunized against the plight of a suffering world. We have so much here. And September 11 is just far enough in our past to, well, I guess just engender from our, our, uh, our national soul a sense of, once again, we're back to life as it was. Once again, we're contented. Once again, hallelujah, here comes Thanksgiving. Let us rejoice that God is good and He has blessed us as a nation. And so, in this national rite of passage, we come again to this holiday. I think of the people in Israel who have a September 11 every few weeks. I think how different we would come to this holiday where we're living on the rough edge of life in Afghanistan or, or uh, India or Africa. We are Americans. I know we're a congregation of over 100 nations. I'm grateful for our cosmopolitan nature, but this is an American holiday. The Canadians beat us to it a month ago. So now we pause to give thanks. And what is Thanksgiving going to be for us? What are you going to do this Thanksgiving? I think if you ask most Americans the question, that question, the answer would shoot back. We're going to eat. We're going to eat. And we're going to eat. Somehow, I don't know what, what is it in this holiday, but I guess we believe we receive through this holiday divine absolution to pig out once a year. And we do. We just, the food has become our preoccupation with Thanksgiving. Nothing wrong with food. It's just front and center for some reason. found a little prayer written by Yvonne Wright. It's a Thanksgiving prayer that she wrote. Bless, O Lord, these delectable victuals. That's old English for food. Bless, O Lord, these delectable victuals. May they add to thy glory and not to our middles. It's because we are preoccupied with food. I wondered today, what could we do outside of the food? Now, now I uh, did you see the cover of the bulletin today? You see the uh, Pilgrim Fathers and Mothers, and of course, you, and they're all bearing food. And we would be remiss if we were not reminded on the eve of this national holiday that food was very much front and center in that first Thanksgiving, simply because they'd already gone without so much food. In fact, you remember, after that devastating winter, oh, nearly half of the colony of pilgrims has been laid to rest beneath the frozen sod of Massachusetts. So it's been a, it's been a terrible, terrible winter. They come out of winter, they come into summer, and then God grants a harvest. I found a letter written by one of the, one of the pilgrim uh, fathers. His name, Edward Winslow. He wrote the letter in 1621. Devastating winter was the winter of 2021, so this is much later in the year. He sends a letter to England, and I thought maybe we could read this letter together. Now, you will see the old English spelling. That's okay. That's, 
the way they did it back then. Let me read a portion of that letter to you. And food is very much front and center, although notice how the letter ends. He's writing to England, our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men out fouling so that we might, after a more special manner, rejoice together after we had gathered the fruit of our labors. These four in one day killed as much fowl as with a little help besides served the company almost a week. They ate well for a week, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms, a little bit of of, uh, playfulness there among the pilgrims, many of the Indians coming amongst us. And amongst the rest, these Indians, their greatest king, Massasoit, with some 90 men whom for three days we entertained and feasted. And they, the Indians, went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and the others. So we did have some food in that first Thanksgiving, he notes. But then the last paragraph, and although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God, we are so far from want, just days really, but he says we're so far from want that we often wish you in England partakers of our plenty. They have gone through this decimating winter. And yet he writes, oh, I wish you people in England could enjoy the plenty we have. Obviously, ladies and gentlemen, for our forefathers and foremothers, Thanksgiving was not a day annually. Clearly, it was a way that they lived day after day after day. I want to take a moment and ponder that attitude of gratitude that our forefathers and foremothers demonstrated to us. Actually, it's not unique to Massachusetts and New Bedford. You find it in New Jerusalem and in heaven. Open your Bible to the, the book we've been in all this semester. Only what, what, two more Sabbaths after this and our semester journey is over. One more time before the Thanksgiving holiday to the book of Revelation, the mighty apocalypse. Our, our brief homily in our Thanksgiving Feast of Hymns today, an apocalyptic Thanksgiving, an attitude of gratitude. I'm in the New Living Translation. They've had Thanksgiving millennia before the Canadians and the Americans ever thought of it. Pick it up here. This is verse 9 in Revelation chapter 7. And after this, John's writing, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne where we have been over and over for the last few weeks, and before the Lamb, and they were clothed in white, and they held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a mighty shout, Salvation comes from our God on the throne and from the Lamb. And then verse 11, All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings, and they fell face down before the throne, and they worshipped God, and they said, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. A double amen. And there's the word. Thanksgiving. There at the foot of the throne. Amen. Thanksgiving be to God forever and ever. Clearly in heaven, Thanksgiving is not an annual ritual. It is clearly an attitude of gratitude that permeates the throne room and in concentric circles moves to the very 
farthest reaches of the universe. An attitude of gratitude. It started in heaven. They have it. It's going on right now in the throne room. And by the way, did you notice that? A double amen. Verse 12. And they said, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Here comes the second amen. Amen. No wonder they sing amen because they have an attitude of gratitude. And why do they have an attitude of gratitude? I'll tell you why. Piece of cake. You'd be singing, you'd be singing Amen every day of your life. You would have an attitude of gratitude if you remembered what they always know. And that is God is still on the throne. If you really believe in your heart that God is on the throne, that God still rules, you would live your life just like they do with an attitude of gratitude. I mean, why wouldn't you be grateful? You see, the problem with you and me, well, maybe not the problem with you, but the problem with me, I'll be very candid with you. <laughs> I keep forgetting that God's on the throne. I have this dumb way of thinking that has me on the throne. What kind of craziness is that? I think I'm on the throne. And because I believe I'm on the throne, when I feel the pressure mounting, I get very nervous. I get worried. I get anxious. You know why? Because I look to the throne and I see me there and I know I'm in big trouble because me's there. In fact, one uh, writer, John Dawson. Oh, I thought this, th this was prescient. How did you come up, Dawson, with this definition of fear? Do you experience fear? Yes, you do. Here is why you experience fear. Do I experience, do I, do you experience fear? Yes, I do. Here is why I experience fear. Look at John Dawson's definition of fear. Put it on the screen here. Fear. Fear is faith in the devil. <laughs> That's what it is. You are so bent out of shape that the devil has gotten a foothold, a jump on you, that you're convinced the devil's on the throne and that's why you're afraid. Isn't that true? Fear is faith in the devil. Or, no, you say, Dwight, I, I never have faith in the devil. Okay, well, what else is fear? Fear is faith in the devil or someone else. Something's going wrong in your life right now and somebody else is the cause of what you are suffering right now. And do you know what? You are so preoccupied with that someone else that you are actually putting faith in that someone to rule your life. And that's why you're filled with fear. I'm afraid what my employer is going to do. I'm afraid what my colleague is going to end up saying. I'm afraid of what my, what, what my wife will decide. You've put your faith in someone else. And the easiest one of all, that I, at least the easiest for me, is to put... My faith in myself. And when I do, I am overwhelmed with worry, anxiety, and fear. Worry and fear are impossible if you see what heaven knows. What is it? How do we say? 24-7, 365. Heaven knows this. 24-7, 365. That God's still on the throne. That God rules. And if God is ruling, what can go wrong that He cannot have instant access to in your life? and remedial response to. Ah. Verse 11, look at this. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings and they fell down before the throne and they worshipped God. And they said, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. Because God's still on the throne. And He still rules. That's how you have an attitude of gratitude 24-7, 365. It's not a holiday anymore. It's an everyday 
invitation. Charles Spurgeon. You ever heard of Charles Spurgeon? The great English preacher of the 19th century. Charles Spurgeon, one night coming home to his parsonage. Heavy day's work now ended. Charles Spurgeon, overwhelmed with a sense of darkness and despair. I've read several biographies of that great preacher and I have learned that for most of his adult life, and some of you will be comforted by this, for most of Spurgeon's adult life, he suffered from what he called his black dog. The perennial sense of depression. He had a proclivity. Some of you have the same. You just have a bias toward depression. And Charles Spurgeon was the same. And he's coming home. No matter all the good you do in your life, if you're feeling depressed, it does, you, you don't think anything about it. You just, you've decided you're worthless anyway. He's coming home feeling, with this, feeling this brooding depression, engulfing his heart, when suddenly a Bible verse, like a shaft of lightning, flashes into his mind, and when he, when he hears the verse, he bursts out laughing. Here is what he heard as he was driving home under that depressive spirit that night. He heard the words of Christ to St. Paul, My grace is sufficient for thee. And the moment he heard those words, he exclaimed out loud to himself, I should think it is. And he broke into laughter. Because he suddenly realized, let's just think logically, Charlie, my man. He realized that the thought of God's grace being sufficient makes unbelief and doubt absurd. An attitude of gratitude that God is on the throne. And so Spurgeon later wrote, I love this, he later wrote, it was as if, speaking of that experience that night, it was as if some little fish, being very thirsty, was troubled and drinking the river dry. The fish, can you imagine a fish in the middle of the river saying, you know, I'm so thirsty, I'm afraid we're going to run out of water here. Oh, he said, it's as if the river said, drink away, little fish, my stream is sufficient for thee. You can drink to your heart's content. I have all the water you need. Uh, Charles Spurgeon reflected later, it seemed to me like, like a little mouse in the granaries of Egypt after seven years of plenty. You remember Joseph filling up the silos for seven years worth? A little mouse in those granaries, surrounded with all that grain, and that little mouse fearing that it, I'm so afraid with all this food around me, I'm, I might eat it all and die of starvation. It's as if Joseph might say, cheer up, little mouse, my granaries are sufficient for thee. Or, Spurgeon said, I thought about a man climbing a mountain and as he's going up, he's taking deep breaths of air and he's saying, wait a minute, I better stop because I, may, I might breathe all the air that's left up here. And it's as if he writes, the mountain might say, breathe away, O man, and fill thy lungs ever. My atmosphere is sufficient for thee. Ladies and gentlemen, an attitude of gratitude is kicked into gear when we remember His grace is sufficient. He's on the throne. Why don't you let God be God in your life? Quit trying to sit, Dwight, on that throne. Let me be me, He says. If you let me on this throne, you'll never worry again in your life. I mean, Jesus never worried. Jesus never worried. Because He knew I was on the throne. Worry and fear, gone. When you remember, God still rules. God lives. Oh, I love this verse 12. And they said, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. God is on the throne. Hallelujah. I want to end with some words written back in 1905. A psychologist could have written these words. 
They have deep psychology in them. I've talked to psychologists. I know psychologists would say, hey, that is right on. Let me read these words from a little classic called Ministry of Healing. Listen to this. Nothing tends more to promote health of body and of soul than does a spirit of gratitude. We'll call it an attitude of gratitude and a spirit of praise. It is a positive duty to resist melancholy, discontented thoughts and feelings. As much a duty as it is to pray. Oh, wow. Resist them. Attitude of gratitude. Say, I don't want to entertain you for guests. I won't resist you. If we are heaven bound, how can we go as a band of mourners groaning and complaining all along the way to our father's house? Now, here comes the psychology. Okay, psychologist said, I've seen that in the textbook. It is a law of nature. Here it comes. It is a law of nature that our thoughts and feelings are encouraged and strengthened as we give them utterance. What you say is what you get. It's true. Psychologists will tell you, what you say is what you get. While words express thoughts, now turn it around. It is also true that thoughts follow words. If we would give more expression to our faith, rejoice more in the blessings that we know we have, the great mercy and the love of God, we should have more faith and greater joy. Watch this. No tongue can express, no finite mind can conceive the blessing that results from appreciating the goodness and love of God. Even on earth, final sentence, even on earth we may have joy as a wellspring never fails because it is fed by the streams that flow from where? Ah, that flow from the throne of God. When you know God's on the throne, you've got an attitude of gratitude because God still rules. He rules. And if He rules, no matter what I'm going through right now, baby, no matter what I am going through today, tonight, the most depressing of nights, the most discouraging of days, I can know God is on the throne and He will take care of it. In fact, next Sabbath. See, you, you students will go home. Have a safe trip, by the way. God go with you. Drive very carefully. Some of us are going to stay by for the Thanksgiving holiday right here. I hope you're here next Sabbath. Because I'm not going to share with you a homily next Sabbath. I'm going to share a teaching. We're going to take this attitude of gratitude concept and give it a stiff Reality check. My own journey these last 12 months makes me wonder, can you really be thankful for all things when I think of my family? When you think of what you've gone through the last 12 months, can you really be thankful, as Paul says, for all things? I'm not sure this attitude of gratitude will hold up. Well, you and I next Sabbath, let's check it. Let's try it. Stiff reality check. In the meantime, this Thanksgiving, here's my concluding offer. Why don't you ask God, no, really. Why don't you ask God to give you what they already have in heaven? Why don't you, in the rest of the praise that's going to ascend this morning, why don't you, in the middle of it, breathe a prayer, Oh God, would you please give to me an attitude of gratitude? If you ask Him, I predict He may very well whisper to you the truth. He says, you can have it just like they have it. He'll whisper to you, do you know how they have it? And you'll say, how? And he will say, they have an attitude of gratitude because they worship. You see, when you worship, 
you know who's on the throne. And when you see Him there, wow, it's Thanksgiving every day.